Welcome to The Big F You. I'm your host, Erica Cantor. This is a show all about fucking up and failing up. I'll be interviewing comedians, artists, entrepreneurs, and generally speaking, people I find interesting about the early parts of their careers to learn how they fumbled their way into various measures of success. Today, I'm talking to Kylie Vinson, a 23-year-old stand-up and solo show artist. She's most known for writing and performing her own one-woman show, The Bird Show. She took that to Edinburgh Fringe Festival in Scotland. Her show received five-star reviews at Edinburgh, with critics saying Kylie Vinson is someone to watch and the world will be hearing more from her in years to come. And I think after this interview, it's just so clear that this woman is a fucking powerhouse and is a hundred percent someone to watch and she's one of my favorite comics for her elite joke writing skills it's clearly something that she's honed only with a fuck ton of really hard work which we talk about and i think it will be apparent to all of you how hard she's worked in order to get her jokes to the level that they're at i will add that we recorded this interview back in december and it is now may 10th so some of what we talk about as future events in the episode actually has already come to fruition for example we talk about how she's going to record bird show in toronto in april to be available on a new streaming platform well april has passed and that happened so that's really fucking cool and we all get to look out for that now the other thing i will say is that kylie is now 23 and at the beginning of this episode I lose my balls at the fact that she's 22 years old. I think it's banana cream pie because I fully thought that she was 35 years old. (laughs) And not because she looks 35, but because her stand-up is that fucking good that you're like, oh, this is a person who's been doing this for 15 years, but she fucking hasn't. She just fucking rolled out of bed one day and was telling brilliant rape jokes. I'm kidding. It seems like she worked really hard at the craft. She literally lived out of her car and toured all around the country for like a full year to get jokes that were that good. It's so impressive. Everyone needs to listen to this episode. I fucking love this bitch. Okay, bye. (laughs) In your bio, you say you're 22 years old. Are you 22 years old? I'm 22 years old. You're 22 years old? That's (laughs) crazy. I thought you were older than I am. Okay, I have so many questions to dive into with you. I love Um, that. I love that you also thought maybe I was lying about being 22 in my bio. Well, I thought maybe this was an old bio. I was like, this has to be an old bio. Like, she's been to Edinburgh Fringe Festival. You've taken this show on the road everywhere and have just driven your car around the country. That's astonishing. That's so insane. I'm just an insane person. I'm I'm an insane person that happens to be 22. When did you start doing comedy? So I grew up in Southern California. And then after I graduated high school, I moved to New York City and I started stand-up then so I was 18 but like before that since I was a kid I did community theater and in high school it was like really apparent that I was gonna go into comedy because I always wanted to be the fucking like I wanted to be Ariel and the Little Mermaid but I was always cast as like goddamn Sebastian and (laughs) so I was like all right message is clear I'm not the love interest I'm the funny person and I didn't know exactly that I was going to be, like, a stand-up comic because I didn't ever, like, watch stand-up or was, like, influenced by it. I watch stand-up that I'm around, but I'm not constantly consumed by it. But me and my, like, 
roommate's friend we were like let's do an open mic one night because like I secretly wanted to do it and then I did an open mic in New York City and then I just never stopped wow that's incredible (laughs) what was that first open mic like I thought I absolutely slaughtered, murdered, killed, but looking back on it, like, God, just, like, cringe fest. That, that, your first year in stand-up is From just absolute cringe fest. Cringe fest cringe fest. <laughs> cringe fest to cringe fest. Yeah, it's just trauma dumping. I remember I rehearsed in front of my roommates, and I did a really scripted five minutes, but it went really well, and it was just, like, it is true what they say about stand-up just being a drug. It's so addictive once you do it. If it's your thing, you just want to keep doing it and getting those laughs and especially in the beginning you're not getting a lot of laughs and in New York City you could get up as many times as you want a night so sometimes I'd go out eight times a night and I would be like I don't feel fulfilled until I get a little more laughter and then I'd go to bed and I'd do the same thing over and over again and did you start making friends in comedy right away like I feel Um, like comics hang out mostly with other comics Yeah, so I mean, I found people that had started recently as well. It was a group of girls, and they had just started going out to open mics too. And we, we got really excited by each other and produced a show together. Because it was honestly really, it's really difficult because stand-ups are like, they don't want to be friends with you until you're good because they don't respect you. And it's like, I get it, but it's also, there is like a high school hierarchy to it. So I I started with these girls and that was really helpful for my first year because the first year is a lot of, especially being a woman in comedy, just a lot of negging and being out and, and people very clicky. And then eventually they ended up not sticking with it. And then I I moved up. And as I started to get better, honestly, I started to meet more people. And now just traveling so much, I see how much comedy, even despite the hierarchy and that bullshit side of it, it's such a community, like such a strong community that wherever you go, wherever state I was in, whatever city I was in, I always had a place to stay and like friends just through stand up, which is really cool. So the reason that I brought you on here was because I kept seeing you posting jokes that I had the exact same concept for and you just cracked the code of it. And I was like, this bitch is on some next level shit, but I very much felt like I was looking up to you. So the fact that you're 22 is just insane to me. Uh, That's great. But just so you know, some of those jokes that I have told to every single person that I've interacted with, they're like, who are the comics that you're looking at right now? I'm like, you guys, there's this girl, Kylie Vincent. She has this joke. It's like guys at a guy's night will be like, oh, did you see the sports game last night? And girls are like, oh, Todd raped you too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I had a joke that was so similar about like a wine and cheese night and it just was not a funny joke whatsoever. It was not landing. And then I kept trying to like figure it out. And I don't think, I think my goals with standup and have been just different. I love standup, but I don't know if it's something that I am good at simply because I hate leaving my house. (laughs) Yeah. And you have to leave that. That's the thing. You You gotta leave the house. house. And like, you have to get on the road. How did you start your show and then decide to go on the road with it? How did that all pan out? 
Um, yeah. So also that that's cool. I do remember you swiping up about that joke and saying that. And it's it's funny because like that was I wrote that joke early on and I had to do a bunch of renditions of it because it wasn't working at first. And like now I'm so happy where it's at because it is like this concept that so many women it's like we, we know exactly what you're talking about, but it's hard to put like your finger on it. And that's in my show, too. So when I I wrote my show about like almost three years ago now, I started journaling it and then I started doing it live. I was workshopping it during the pandemic with a small group of people and also by myself. And then about a year ago, I started doing it live in New York City and it was such a different version than it is now. And at the time I was in a relationship with this guy that I lived with and when I first started doing bird I was kind of like really just like coming out of my shell and finding my own and a lot of things in my life I was like looking at like okay this relationship isn't working and we broke up and then so the apartment was about to be you know gone in like two months and I was like all right I can either find a new place in New York City and keep workshopping the show here or because I knew that the end goal was going to be Fringe and from that point Fringe was going to be a year from then and I was like or I could do what I've always wanted to do and I can build out the back of my SUV and I could take this thing on the road and really just focus my life on it this whole year and then bring something to Fringe that I'm really proud of. So it was a really scary thought because I'd submitted it for, I'd gotten a couple gigs like out of college and then in this theater in San Francisco. And I was like, you know, instead of flying back and forth, I'll just keep booking things and, and drive my car. But I, I remember I was like on shrooms one night and I got an email that I got into the, another thing with my show. And I was like, oh shit, this means like, I really have to commit to doing it. And it was two weeks before I left. And I never said it out loud to anyone until like a week before that I was like I'm doing this like for real I didn't build my car out till like a day before I left I got like a U-Haul and I moved everything into storage by myself and it wasn't until I was literally on the road I was like holy shit this is my life now flash forward to it's like a year later now and I've finished it all out how did you know that fringe was your end goal Well, the director I was with at the time, she was like, I think I actually didn't really know much about Fringe because I've come from this like theater background as like a kid. And then I started stand up and from my own devices, I wasn't really keened in on like those solo shows. I didn't even really mean to write a solo show. I wasn't sitting down and was like, I'm going to write a one woman show. It just kind of happened. And then I started working on it. And I was like, this is actually a whole separate division in addition to stand up and theater. And so my director, who's a big theater person, has gone to Fringe before to bring theater shows there. And she was like, I think your show would do really well at Fringe. And like, usually that's the, the next big step with it. And so I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to, and, and like in my head, I was like, Fleabag went there, you know, like that's what <laughs> I want to do. So <laughs> I'll be there. But it was nice because like, I think I was working towards something and you know, it's hard. Cause like in the beginning, I thought this was just going to like stay in my computer forever. Like not a lot of projects get made, but the yeah. great thing is you can just do it. Like I just booked theaters all throughout the country just cause I, 
I like had my little pitch packet and I had done it a couple places before and I was like this is gonna be good and I will sell seats and blah 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 and that's just like half of it is like you just can do whatever you want and then you know going to fringe was a whole nother beast and I'm really glad I did it but holy shit it was insane can you talk about those pitch packets and what it looked like to pitch yourself and then also sell tickets and get an audience in there yeah I think that's honestly you know my my show is a really heavy topic and it's really personal to me and finding the the balance between comedy and the genuine parts of it is really difficult but another difficult part is the promoting part of it and doing it all on your own and then still feeling like you can be creative because I've done the show probably about like I don't know like over 60 times done it in like over 10 cities and all of those on the road I did myself and I promoted myself and so I put this pitch packet together it was like photos a video of the show I got I gathered audience reviews when I first did it in New York um you know summary why it's important how I can sell it out like my ticket sales pass and it's hard because I was going to cities where it's like I don't really know anyone and I'm, right. I'm not I don't have this huge following so I really have to canvas for it and that is like the most stressful part because it's like you want to just share your art with people but you need people to be there for it and what does the like, canvassing process look like? A lot of it is now Instagram ads are like submitting to to people online and things like that and asking other Instagram accounts to share it. But mm-hmm. I would literally go to cities and be like, are you guys, I'd go into like bookstores and be like, wow, you that, that's a cool book. What about a, a one woman show tonight? Or <laughs> really insert myself in there where it didn't make sense. But I wanted it so bad. And I was like, I've risked my entire like stability to do it that I had nothing to lose at that point that when I'd go to a city and I'd make friends, I, I was just like, I was just being a vagabond. I'm like, I need to be out all day anyway, because I can't like stay in my car. And so I just make friends and I would, I would spread the word and I would do stand up spots, which helps I'd promote my show at the end of it. But you know, now gathering over like I don't even know how many cities I've like made little lifes in at this point but now that I have all of that it's like I can always go back to them which is really cool how long would you be in each place for it depend it was dependent like in the beginning kind of crazy I I left a little late and I had to be in San Francisco 14 days from when I left New York City which is literally all across the country yeah so on the way there it was very quick And so sometimes I would only stay like a couple nights in a place. And then on the way back, I started living in places. For example, I was in Atlanta one night on the way there. But then when I got to San Francisco, I was there for like two weeks. And then on the way back, I would be in Austin two weeks, Los Angeles two weeks. This is some Jack Kerouac shit. Yeah, it was. I mean, I'm ready to be experiencing like a place where it feels like I'm stable and have a home. But my car will always never have seats in the back of it because <laughs> there's a part of me that I'm like, this is, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I've ever been ha- happier, but there's also some really, really hard moments, but like, there's just something beautiful about just focusing on my show and comedy and experiencing cities and, and making friends. Like that's how I met Orion. 
uh, who we met through right was in San Francisco and he helped me a lot with getting into the San Francisco scene and I made like one of my best friends out of it and I could say the same about a lot of cities too so cool can you talk about if you were ever experiencing loneliness on the road and like what your sort of outside support system looked like besides people that you were just meeting along the way yeah oh my god yeah it's it, I mean it is so exhausting it like there's a there's like a fun part to being the person who's just passing through and being that anomaly because it's it's exciting but then also there's so much energy being drained that everything's always new and and especially living in a car it's like sometimes you want to lay up in bed and just like watch Netflix all day but it's like okay no I gotta piss in a bucket I can't I just am <laughs> laying up but I had I mean I have so many good friends and especially in some places I already knew like LA I have a lot of good friends and then back home in New York I would call friends at at night when I was sleeping in my car to make it feel more comfortable but I actually remember because that 14 day stretch when I got to San Francisco, that is probably one of like the loneliest times I felt like that first week, it was really hard. They're not like the friendliest scene. I don't know if it's because they're all tech people and just don't know how to socialize properly. <laughs> but they're like, they're not that welcoming. San Francisco hasn't become that welcoming of a city either because of everything that's happening there now. It was difficult. Gas Definitely was, like oh my a God. bizarre place. It's a crazy a place. A little when dystopic. I did this during inflation. So when I got to California, gas was like $7. I'm not even shitting you. I was like, I was trying not to move. It kind like, of still is. That's that. I don't say that. That makes me feel sick about moving there. You need a hybrid. <laughs> I do. I need a Prius. But uh, can you sleep in a Prius? I don't know. <laughs> I think you can make it work. I could, I could you could make it work <laughs> yeah so it was just like I was running low on money I didn't know anyone in San Francisco and that was the longest place I was going to be in and I was really tired because it's it, you know I didn't have a resting period and then when I met Orion things changed because he felt like more of like a homey part of that right but I I also I have bipolar disorder and during all of this I was same <laughs> Oh my God, slay! What I I I was unmedicated at the time. I am currently so, unmedicated. <laughs> oh my God, are you trying to start medication or? No, I mean I. The thing is, is that like I've had a therapist diagnose me before, and I've never really had a psychiatrist pay attention to me. <laughs> I think that as a result, I've been misdiagnosed and put on the wrong thing so many times that I just feel like I need to not do that. That's exactly how I felt was I was with pill pusher psychs and people that wouldn't really listen to like the, the quirks about my mental illness and it would just be very generalized and then I'd always get put be put on wrong shit or like way higher doses where I'd be like a walking horse sleeping yeah it was just yeah, yeah. I, I was speaking like so... really high dosages mm -hmm. I I was also like on Vyvanse for all of college I was a crackhead oh yeah like people it's... used to, are like you used to be such a good student and I'm like no I was just literally on crack <laughs> it's on crack cocaine yeah and it makes you so distrusting of that community and I never wanted to and then it was actually the road that made me realize this 
uh, uh, specifically with what I experienced with bipolar, because I know it's really different for people, but like, I was having such highs and lows. And then I was also constantly experiencing like serotonin drops of new things, new people doing my show. And then the the lows were really low because it was lonely in a new city in my car. I just remember being like, this is exhausting because the highs were awesome. Fuck yeah. Like I literally still miss those. But then the lows were so tiring. And then I have to pick up from where I left off. And that would sometimes take a while. And I was like, for me, I needed to do something about it. But it was it was a weird dichotomy of having those highs and lows in my brain, but also the highest of highs and lows of lows in like my external as well. Did it ever debilitate you from doing the show? Because full disclosure, the past two weeks, I've been in a slump, like mm-hmm. a real fucking slump. And... I've just been trying to wait it out and have been so unproductive and like, it's just been dark. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. I, yeah, no, I it's, know what that is. But I'm also just so used to it that I'm like, I know that it will pass. And then when I do get to that high, I'm mm-hmm. going to be like, you know, yes. and people oh. are like, slow down, slow down, slow down. <laughs> Yeah, I know that all too well. I mean, I honestly, it's so funny. I'm like a Republican dad with myself. Like, what, no, no <laughs> yeah, breaks. Yeah, you gotta pit your, pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Kick the dirt off your feet. Like, I, I'm so Kick the hard dirt off your feet? <laughs> you know how Republican dads speak? I don't know. My dad didn't stick around long enough for me to get the sayings right, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But dude, yeah, I'm so hard on myself that like, if I do have a day where I'm taking time to myself, I feel so guilty that I it's not even enjoyable. And I'm sure you can relate to that. Yeah, no, I would say I do relate to that. And then this week specifically I was like I mean I have a day job and I was like my only priority is not getting fired from this day job because I'm so Mm -hmm. dysfunctional right now that none of the work I'm doing is even good and so I was just like I'm only doing my day job and then I would come home and watch tv and watch white lotus or whatever oh my god I love white lotus yeah but that phase needs it's needs to end today (laughs) I love that you're saying it out loud to someone so you're manifesting now you have to do it it's it's done it's done (laughs) I mean no it's good that you took that time though because I think we can be too hard I mean just the culture of like the especially working in entertainment it's just a constant I feel like I'm always on the clock yeah Mm -hmm. especially with comedy specifically it's like if I'm not out all night doing sets, then I'm posting clips and then I'm like, uh, need to go like socialize at an event just to show up. And yeah, and then I'm also like submitting packets for things and it, you get those at like, you gotta be ready to receive that email. So it, it's definitely, it's always on my brain and, and I think it is good to recharge, but, uh, I, I, I think I'm having right now in my life, I'm having a hard time being like easy going on myself. Yeah, no, definitely. I I relate to that super hard. This was a this was an anomaly of a week. <laughs> uh, I totally. Um, it feels like fever dream. What are you right? on? If you don't mind my asking, 
Oh yeah, no, I'm on. I'm gonna send this video to a psychiatrist and be like, (laughs) "Give me what she's on." (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's definitely not like magic or anything, but it has stabilized my highs and lows. It's called Latuda. It's a mood stabilizer. Latuda. Latuda. Um, it's so funny. Like. I have so many bipolar friends and like we all compare our medication and go over it. And it's not the first one that I was put on. I was put on something else called Abilify and it made me feel like a noodle. I I don't know how to explain it, but I just felt like Hmm. a wet spaghetti noodle all the time. The Um, thing is, is like I, you, you're saying that I know exactly what you mean. Okay. I love that. A wet spaghetti noodle. Yeah. I was on Wellbutrin for a while. Oh yeah. I have friends that, that are on that. And then when I got off of Wellbutrin, I I like, I don't know. I feel like I've gone through phases before too where I'm like, am I that fucking crazy that I'm going to be 80 years old and like still taking psych medication or whatever? Right. And so there have been times where I, and no one should do this. This is terrible to be talking about right now. No one on medication should ever do this. But I was like, I don't want to take this anymore. So I stopped mm. taking it. And mm-hmm. I remember it was this summer that I was working an internship in real estate development or had some like fucking office job. And I was mm-hmm. sitting in these meetings just on the verge of tears for extended periods of time because the come down was just so hard. Oh, also, this brutal. is not what I wanted to talk about with you at all. <laughs> <laughs> that is so fine. I mean, I feel like... It's bound to come up with with the girlies. Yeah. (laughs) Bipolar disorder. Sad girlies. (laughs) Sad girlies. Yeah, no, I mean, I I encourage anyone who wants to go on medication, try it. But it's also, it's a long process. And it's like, I've been through phases where I'm like, I'm fucking done with this. And that's like, you know, sometimes it's good for you. And then if you want to come back to it, you can. But if not, it's going to be there. We're all still figuring it out. We're so young that it's like, who knows? Maybe in 10 years, they'll fucking cure bipolar disorder with, I don't know. Brain like, chip. Maybe oh, no. Actually, this is true. I once met a guy who was making a startup that was like a brain chip that you would put in the back of your skull surgically, no. and it would cure your depression. No. He should die. He I don't like so that. Sketchy. He was so sketchy. Please the tell first me you time... didn't have sex with him. Oh, no. Absolutely not. Absolutely That'd not. But like, my friend and I were convinced that he was trying to have a threesome with us. <laughs> well, he has a chip in his brain. Of course he wants a threesome. He's not depressed. Yeah, true. true. I mean, like, who doesn't want a threesome? That's not the craziest thing. But it's like he he was another level of terrifying San Franciscan type of tech dude. Yeah, Silicon Valley looking ass. Yeah. <laughs> the first scary. time I met him, he had like – we were in Costa Rica and he had like a grasshopper that was crawling around his hands and he was just playing with it. It's like, this guy is evil Knievel. I feel like those people like really think they're the main character of everything that they're like, this grass, like I can, I, these girls see me with this grasshopper. Like I'm, I'm so cool. Like <laughs> it's just so weird. Men are so weird. Men are so terrifying. Which is a great segue. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. (laughs) The other thing that you've done so exquisitely is figure out a way to mine your trauma in a comedic sense. 
And legitimately, I don't want to say every single friend that I have, but actually most of my friends that I'm very close to all have had similar assault experiences. And Mm. I just am curious what it's been like to turn that into your art and the process in doing that. I know you were saying it's hard to sometimes find the balance between comedy and making it serious and heavy and finding lightness in that. And I'm just curious what you have to say on that. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was strange because I had never been open about being a child that's sexual assault survivor. And then it was just like, I was just doing this show. So the the first time I did it, it was really scary because it was like I a lot of my friends were there. And that's the first time they heard about it. Right. And it was scary. And I wanted to back out of it at first. And it was taking a lot out of me. And specifically in rehearsal, when I was working with people creatively, and they're picking apart the script, which is also just my real life. And that became a little bit difficult, because I hadn't dealt with it basically my entire life. It wasn't something that was on the forefront of my to-do list. So when I first started doing it, it was extremely difficult. And I also hadn't found a great balance of the comedy yet. And so there wasn't a lot of relief for me because it felt a little bit inauthentic because the director I was with at the time was very theater-based and she didn't have experience in stand-up and was kind of pushing a little bit of that that I wanted to bring in it that is in it now. And I mean, luckily, I did break into that more. And it it feels like pushing of what pushing of increasing the level of comedy or? Yeah, she just wanted it to be like, really arty. And it was to an extent, some of like, what she wanted in it was good for me, because there are really genuine moments that I think were necessary. And maybe weren't going to be there unless I had someone looking in that outside perspective but what I really wanted was like the building of building of tension of these real things and then breaking that tension with comedy and I think all my favorite do that if you see Gerard Carmichael's new special he does that really well oh yeah Um, that's amazing yeah and have you um, seen his movie which movie I think it's called on the count of three I no, I didn't even know that that existed. That's awesome. Is it streaming somewhere? Is it streaming somewhere? It is on Hulu by subscription or two ninety nine on Amazon Prime. Slay, you guys, you guys hear that? You can also watch it for two ninety nine. And that's a great movie because he deals with depression and suicide Mm -hmm. in a way that brings levity to the topic. And I just was like, this is an excellent film for like I mean an excellent film period and an excellent film for a first-time director yeah that's amazing and just like seeing Bo Burnham direct his special and anything Bo Burnham does I'm also a huge fan of but now I feel like doing my show it's very healing especially now that I found that that perfect to me almost perfect to me uh, it will never be perfect but (laughs) that balance of comedy and the genuine serious parts and sharing that with audiences each time I do it has just become such a blessing in a way. If I had seen a show like mine when I was 15, when I was really struggling with this stuff and putting it to the side, it would have felt really hopeful for me. And so I feel that 
just sharing the stage with the audience and the feedback I get afterwards from, like you said, a lot of women and other people who've been through similar things. It feels like a relief, honestly. Can you talk about when you were first working out the material and maybe this still happens to you? But I know for me personally, sometimes people are like, oh, this shit's a bit dark, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you ever got feedback like that and how that impacted how you moved forward and continued to work on the show. Um, I think the best part of doing something like a solo show long form is there are no rules. And while there's like no rules in stand up necessarily, you know, you have a job and stand up to if you're doing like a 10 minute set, like, yeah, I'm sure you want to share something that is important to you. And maybe it's really dark. But ultimately, you're getting paid to make people laugh and entertain them. But Whereas my show, I feel like I have an hour to spread this message I'm trying to to send and things for people to think about. But I also can make people laugh at, at whatever speed I want. It doesn't have to be laugh per minute. In the beginning, I did a lot of Google Forms when I was traveling with it and when I first did it in New York with audience and I sent it to people who came to the show. And there was a section of feedback, like if anything was too dark or triggering or, or any other general feedback. And, and there were a couple constructive criticisms from audience and also my creative team that I really took seriously because I know that I'm not one of those people where I'm like, well, fuck you if it makes you uncomfortable. Like, it's like, it's my job to make you comfortable. So I know I'm not going to please everyone, yeah. but I would like my show to not be an echo chamber to someone who is like me I wanted to sit well with other people too like some of the best feedback I've received is or some of the most surprising is straight men will come up to me after and be like so I talk about my family members and people in my life as animals I have this animal metaphor that I use a lot and all of the men in the story are monkeys and um some men have come up to me afterwards and they're like, it made me think about if I've ever been like a monkey. And I was like, damn, that is so That's cool. The point of the show. Exactly. I like hearing what people think, but it's also like in this, in this world of now where I'm at with going to fringe and the show getting more viewership is like, it's getting reviewed and critiqued and whatever. And I realized like the whole people who critique all the shows are old, straight white men much like a lot of the industry and I got a really good review at Fringe and then I got like no it was like a an okay review where he basically the whole time was like I cannot review this because it makes me uncomfortable and I don't know what to laugh at and I was like dude you know what it's crazy because no one is even like me to review something that world is so tarnished with there's not enough representation of like they're reviewing for themselves. They're not even looking outside of like, who would this be for? And I've I've had a lot of experience with that recently of someone came to my show that was like a a big reviewer and I wasn't expecting to put it in his publication because it's pretty big publication, but sometimes they do like a social media shout out Mm -hmm. or something. And it was an awesome show and there was nothing that came out of it for me, but like he he did a social media shout out for some other guy's solo show and he compared him to another straight white male comedian 
And I was like, dude, that's all they want is just two straight white male comedians. Like they want like a Noah's Ark of male comedians. And they they just so badly want to compare you to someone because it's easy for their like brain to grasp (laughs) onto. And I'm like, that's fine. I get that. But I'm a 22 year old woman that is talking about sexual assault. There's no one to compare me to. So it's like, if you, if that is like the goal of like someone critiquing, I get why they wouldn't want to critique me. But I think that just shows you what the problem is, because then it's like, I post my, my joke on TikTok, like the one that you're talking about, about girls getting raped all the time. And it, it hits like 2 million views and all the comments are like, OMG, this is so true. And I'm like, okay, then this show should get more recognition because all these fucking people have been through this, but we're not talking about it, you know? I mean, I think something for me that I feel very cognizant of is you can't really expect anyone within the industry to like stick their neck out for you at this point Mm -hmm. in time, especially when you are tackling this topic because- Mm -hmm. I think it's very threatening to straight white men, especially when a lot of the time I think there's a little bit of maybe a lack of awareness. And it is factual that the person that's going to laugh at that joke is the person who's experienced that. You know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? It's like a guy doesn't understand that when a bunch of girls get together, what we literally talk about is the fact that we've had these traumatic experiences and there's a a whole dynamic of trauma bonding. I think that happens between women in this really beautiful and sad way. It's sort of sublime in that way. And I think that men are never going to understand that because they've never experienced that. And so it kind of makes your show perhaps a little intimidating to them because it's like a topic that if they do speak on, it could be taken the wrong way, which I don't think should mean that men should feel fear to do that at all. But it definitely means that you got to keep doing what you're doing and just doing it independently because it's like Mm -hmm. that straight white man, you know, who's reviewing whatever the fuck at some big fancy publication. Sometimes just like, it's like they failed us for so long. It's are they going to start tomorrow? Like picking it up. And I do want to say on top of that, that level of the industry, like the reviewers are much older. Whereas like the last show I had, my friend brought her boyfriend and his friends and they were like very like dude bro guys. And they were so amazing. Like they were laughing at all the funny parts. They literally teared up. And afterwards they were like, oh my God, we loved it. Next time you're here, like we're going to bring all of our friends. She called me and she's like, I walked in on him in his room and he was wearing your like merch shirt and talking to his mom on the phone about how much he loved your show. That's amazing. It was so amazing because I was like, you know, I don't know what they're going to think. Yeah. You know, there are so many that's actually how I met my current boyfriend too he's a comic as well and he heard about my show and he was like just really like taken by the topic just knowing like so many people have been through some similar things and then when he saw it we just connected over it and stuff and not trauma bond don't worry guys we did trauma bond (laughs) Um, 
<laughs> maybe a little bit I don't know he's like a straight dude from Georgia and I yeah. was like if people surprise you and I think it is nice that that is like the hopeful part I'm like this generation does feel like it's moving away from what we've been conditioned to and hopefully they'll soon take those jobs yeah. of the people that ha- haven't yet gotten it and I mean elevating your art in that way does bring the topic to the forefront for people whose minds are ready to be changed or ready to grow. I think my point is only that it would take a lot of courage for someone in a position of power to take a risk. Totally. You know, Mm -hmm. the fact that your show is having that impact on so many people is incredible and just goes to show you that you just got to keep going. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, totally. Epic. Uh, appreciate that yeah through all the anger of this because it is just angering to be a woman and I'm sure you know in the industry or any industry you're in and then like especially where you step into stand-up comedy and it feels like the fucking 1950s on how sexist everyone is (laughs) and then specifically talking about this shit it's like sometimes you're like is this worth it because so much shit comes with it but like you said the people that it does impact it makes it a hundred percent worth it yeah yeah the fact that all those people are then willing to share it with their friends like I think you are a comedian to watch in terms of word of mouth I said that one joke at the beginning but there are multiple clips that you've posted that unlike any other comedian I've recited repeatedly to friends like you have this one bit I'm also bisexual and you were like, I used to make out with girls in high school and I thought it was just for fun. And now I'm bisexual. So it's serious business. <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's just so fucking stupid. And you have this amazing presence on stage. It was hilarious. It's a great joke. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's, <laughs> I do feel like it's funny. It's funny hearing you being like, yes, I am also bipolar and bisexual. I'm like, yes, <laughs> bipolar I, I bear. <laughs> bisexual, bipolar, Gen Z girlies. But there, there is a new generation of us that there's no one like us yet represented in a big way and like stand up it's moving in a new direction but I totally agree with you that it's it's cool to see like other young people talking about that kind of shit that resonates with me as well yeah yeah I think this goes to what you were just saying earlier but despite the fact that maybe the upper echelon of what is the establishment industry has not budged I feel like among my friends and my friends of comedians and all that jazz, I feel very comfortable in my skin. You know, Mm -hmm. I feel like people want to support me and there's no judgment and everyone's a freak in their own way these days, which is epic. (laughs) Absolutely. And also just speaking on industry wise, I, after Fringe, I got repped by a management and my manager and most of the managers under that company are all like women and they're all so badass and that's like you know that's industry and I'm yeah. like well that's really hopeful because they rock so hard and the people that they they rep are all different types of people with all different shit to say and so I'm like that is hope that shit isn't all bleak when it comes to that kind of stuff you know what's the next for you do you think Right now I'm in Atlanta and I'm working on some TV stuff 
for the future and then I'll be long-term moving to Los Angeles and I'll be there and and my my main focus is like keep doing bird nice and then keep keep working on this tv stuff it's things I'm excited about great and yeah hopefully it's something that one day I'll be like look Erica this is what I was talking about oh no it will Um, be (laughs) I think I honestly think so I'm very excited about future projects but also really excited about still what's happening with bird like in april i'm going to do it at a theater in vancouver and they're actually they have like a film team and they asked to shoot my project and they want to like film a concept special with me oh my god that's amazing yeah it's like so awesome that i just i have this team of people that want to do this So I'm working on that. It's a newer streaming service that they're going to put it on for a short period of time. And then after that, I own the rights to it. So hopefully I can get it somewhere where a lot of people can access it. That will be a nice bow tied at the end of the present on Bird and hopefully keep doing it live. But, you know, reaching more people so then I can keep doing it live with more people in the audience. Yeah, so cool. Well, you're a fucking rock star. You're effervescent. Truly. Uh, and you inspire you. me to step up my own game. Gotta say. Because oh, okay, I look, look at your you. shit and I'm like, okay, I gotta step up my fucking game because I have the exact same taste in comedy as this person and she's doing it. So yes. I gotta get out there. <laughs> I love that. That is so cool to hear. Thanks for sharing that. No, totally. Well, I don't want to keep you too long because I know you have to go. Here's a fun question. Let's hear it. What's your phone usage like? Should I check this right now? Yeah. Let's hear it. How do I check it? I don't even know. It's kind of a stupid question, but I'm going to stand by it. General screen time? Oh, screen time. Okay. Daily average is five hours a day, and it's up 20% from last week. So I would say that's pretty high. You did it, What is yours? Wait, how do I check? It's in your settings settings and it's under do not disturb i like that also before this you were like you just go to settings <laughs> you're just like go my... to settings. oh screen time oh i'm three hours and 42 minutes and it's down 19 percent from last week Ugh, you won yeah but the thing is is you have a better social media presence <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. It's such a bitch though. I know. That's the thing that also really gets me. It's like, I fucking hate Instagram, but it's like, I'm now submitting to the fact that this is a tool you need to use in order to do, to chase your dreams. We're businesses and not personal people or whatever on there. So (laughs) (laughs) two things you're grateful for. I'm grateful for performing my show to people and also my disabled dog Bonnie so cute how long have you had Bonnie for again I've had Bonnie for like over two years now I got her broken already so she's been broken her mostly her whole life (laughs) I feel like like I met Bonnie she's a she's a cutie and then you did give us one big fuck you oh I was in Trader uh, I went to Bonnie heard her name Sorry, I know, Bonnie. Slay, slay queen, slay down. That's how I train <laughs> my dog. Slay down. I was in the Trader Joe's parking lot, and you know when you get into the car and then you put your maps in to get home. Yeah. And I'm not 
sitting in there that long. Like, I know someone's waiting for the spot. But then he, like, rolls down the window. He's like, are you ever going to get out of your fucking spot? And I was so funny. I literally just, I, like, sat there and I looked at him. And I was like, you can wait. And then when I went on the way out, I just stuck my tongue out at him like a child. I went like this. for that i was like that was so stupid I yeah you that really I showed him you really <laughs> showed him <laughs> and i was like hey you mister you're real mean and i'm sick of it <laughs> and i don't want to do this anymore yeah i really showed him i really stuck it to the man <laughs> i think that's what your your title of your memoir is going to be Sticking it, sticking it to the, to the man. man in the Trader Joe's parking lot. Oh, that's actually pretty good. That's like that. I mean, yeah, I might use that. You should. Well, thank you so much for your time, Kylie. You're the best. Oh my God. And I'll see Thanks you soon, probably. Me. Yeah, I'll see you soon in LA. Cool. Okay, bye, one. girlie. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Big F You. I'm your host, Eric. Sorry, that was just a, a little thing i was trying out there um i won't do that again no promises thank you all for listening to the another episode of the big f you it was really fun wasn't it yeah i had fun i sure had fun and you guys should all go and follow at kylie vincent the first on instagram and you can follow me at the big f you show for more updates love you all bye, bye.